You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Our scripture reading tonight is in John 2, beginning with verse 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it stood written, zeal for thy house will consume me. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Old Testament scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, so long as they were beholding his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we pray now that you would indeed plant your word down deep in us. We pray that you would cause it to bear fruit. Father, open up our ears to hear and lead us in your truth. And we pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Good evening, everyone. It's really, really good. Clint was talking about a lot of you just a second ago, but the back of my head was primarily to you. So it's really good to see all of you here this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Here at Christchurch, we're persuaded in the New Testament that there shouldn't be just one pastor, certainly not a top-down pastor. Uh, So Clint and I are both pastors here, sharing leadership and, Lord willing, uh, not only with each other. Two weeks from tonight, we're planning to announce to you all Kyle Junick and Ryan Gilmore as non-staff pastors or elders here who will carry equal pastoral leadership and authority with Clint and me, so we're all glad that you're here, and we would, all four of us, certainly I, would love to meet you after the service if I haven't yet. Uh, plan to stick around. The food truck will still be outside, cooking up some sandwiches. Uh, so grab one if you didn't. I'd love to meet you. Well, we are in our now sixth week going through the gospel according to John, and if you don't have a Bible, 
you can go ahead and, ahead and use one of the ones in front of you in the pew. The translation might be just a bit different than what we're using, but we'd also love for you to have a Bible of your own if you don't have one. We've got several on this table on your way out. You can just grab one. That's our gift to you. Uh, we would love you to ha- not only have a Bible, but begin to read it. And if you don't know what to what or where to begin reading, reading through this Gospel of John would be a great place to start. Uh, so if you find the New Testament, we're in the Gospel of John. The New Testament begins about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, and then John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or just feel free to check the table of contents at the beginning. We'll be in chapter 2 this evening as Byron read to us. Those big numbers, chapter 2, and then starting in verse 13. So far, John, one of Jesus' disciples wrote down this account as an eyewitness and theological compilation of who Jesus was, is, what he taught, what he came to do. So far, in chapter 1, he explained to us that Jesus is the eternal, creative God of the universe. He didn't have his beginning on, like, Christmas night in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus doesn't have a beginning because he is actually God. He's not just a misunderstood traveling rabbi who didn't know when to shut his mouth about peace and love and stuff, and he got himself into trouble. No, he is actually God, not just a rabbi. Another John, then in chapter 1, John the Baptist, then recognized and announced to the world that Jesus is the Lamb of God, come to take the sins of the earth away. Jesus isn't a lamb merely because he's just meek and mild, and he's kind of cute and fuzzy or something. Uh, He would become the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb whose blood would cover the sins of the people who were previously opposed to him. We saw Jesus know and see right through those whom he met and ultimately would come to follow him. And then last week, we saw Jesus at a wedding. Cana was out of wine, and the entire system of merely ritualistic external cleanliness showed itself to be empty. So Jesus showed himself to be the giver of a new and better wine, the new and internally cleansing, satisfying wine of his death on our behalf. Well now, just like Jesus showed himself last week to be a better and purer way of purification, uh, better than just these stone jars, this week he'll likewise show himself to be a better and surer way of purification than a stone building, that of the temple. It's hard to quantify or even feel emotionally or viscerally just how important the temple would have been for first century Jews. For about their first thousand years or so, God's people had no permanent place, to a, a permanent fixed temple, a place of worship and sacrifice until King Solomon built the first temple at about the year 900 BCE or so. This lasted for about 400 years until that temple was ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. And this was indeed the darkest day in Israel's history. Israel legitimately wondered, what does this mean? If the temple is destroyed, is God still with us? Has he given up on us? Can we still be God's people if he isn't with us here in the temple? But then 70 years later, a Persian king allowed them to return to Israel and rebuild the temple. It slowly regained its architectural structure, but it certainly did not regain its glory as in the years of Solomon. 
until Herod the Great began really working on it just a couple of decades before the birth of Christ. Now, about 40, 46 years, we find out in the text, in Jesus' day, the temple is the place, once again, of Jewish religious and political identity, but now again, certainly of national pride. We don't have anything similar to this as Americans, but maybe something would be like a combination of like the White House, the World Trade Center, the National Cathedral, and the Statue of Liberty, all wrapped up in one. This would be something like the temple was for Israel. And it's to this building and this area that Jesus and his followers now begin to move in verse 13. It's the time of Passover, we find out, where once a year, Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would return to Jerusalem to remember the time when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. The Hebrew slaves in those days smeared a, the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost of their houses in Egypt, and the angel of death would pass over those who were trusting in the promises of God through the shed blood of the lamb. Those who trusted in him would find life and freedom. So annually, the population of Jerusalem would swell to well over two million people. They would come to remember and celebrate at the temple and throughout Jerusalem what God had done all those years ago. We read in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now on a map, this is actually down. He would go down south uh, but Jerusalem is on a mountain, so they're going up the mountain to Jerusalem. But they're also not going up just in elevation, but also in importance. Just like people all over England might say, you go up to London, no matter where you're coming from, uh, elevation-wise, they're going up to London in a sense of importance, and the same would be so here. But what Jesus does when he gets there is surprising to everyone. And we'll see the rest of chapter 2 play out really in two movements. In verses 13 through 18, we see Jesus clearing the temple. And then in verses 19 through 25, Jesus fulfills the temple. So first, he clears the temple. Beginning in verse 14, when Jesus arrives at the temple, John tells us, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So oxen, sheep, pigeons, or doves. These would have all been used in sacrificial worship surrounding the Passover. And since many pilgrims were coming from all over the Mediterranean world, uh, perhaps hundreds and hundreds of miles away, it was a massive convenience to be able to buy your sheep, your ox, your dove there near the temple so that you didn't have to drive your oxen or your sheep from Egypt or from modern-day Turkey or something. And every year at this festival, all males over 20 years had to pay an annual temple tax. But it was to be paid with the acceptable Jewish temple shekel. So it was another convenience that if I have Egyptian or Roman coins, and I need to be able to pay this in a temple shekel, that I can actually exchange my money there. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus accusing these salesmen and money traders as being thieves and robbers, maybe they were skimming off the top, uh, not really charging what they ought to have been charging. In John's gospel, 
Jesus seems to be actually just more concerned and upset that they're there at all. They're in the temple. Perhaps it'd be okay for the salesmen and these money changers to be near the temple, maybe a half mile out. As people were approaching the temple, it might be fine and convenient for me to then buy my ox as I go up towards the temple. But instead of walking through the outer courts of the temple, where there ought to be solemn and serious worship going on, people uh, praying, psalms being sung, all of these things going on, the love of God and the love of neighbor just being full and happening, bustling even around the temple. Instead, all Jesus can hear as he walks in is the mooing of oxen and the bleeding of sheep. And while the Old Testament law is very clear on cleanliness and the purity of worship, to to avoid being too crass here, Jesus likely has to watch his step as he's walking through. Animals and their remains are likely everywhere. What in the world has God's worship become? Jesus is thinking as he walks in. It seems that the people had begun to severely devalue the reality of God's worship, his holiness. And the picture of God's holiness presented throughout Israel's history is kind of like that of the sun. If you think about the the light and the warmth of the sun, it is life-giving, it is indeed warm, it is pure, it is the center of gravity. But the heat and light of the sun is also white-hot. Like, get too close to it without care, without following the right protocol, and it's, in fact, life-threateningly dangerous. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, God had shown that he intends to dwell with his people, live with them. Like, can you imagine that? Like, the the warm, life-giving, yet dangerous purity of the sun living near and with People, But this is exactly what God has intended to do all along. But because of humanity's sin, our rebellion against God, even our hatred of his existence, makes dwelling with him actually a terrifying thing. Like flying like a couple of hundred miles away from the sun without proper shielding. This is dangerous. So the question throughout much of the Old Testament is, how will God live with humanity without consuming them? In the old way, the old covenant and the Old Testament, the way that God would continue to dwell with a sinful people is by ongoing and regular sacrifice at the temple, where the just and right anger of God against a people who ongoingly choose to ignore him instead gets diverted onto sheep, onto oxen. But these, each year and several times a year, were just like deferring payment on a credit card. One credit card swipe after another, each time just deferring the payment and deferring the payment and deferring the payment to a later time. And in Jesus' time, and even before, as we used in a confession from Isaiah 1, which was about 500 years, the confession that we spoke together today, about 500 years or so before Jesus, God's people were and still are continually tempted toward just paying the minimum, doing what is necessary just to remain God's people, but doing so perhaps in just an effort to manipulate his continued blessing. Israel's sacrifices and worship, these were often done not out of a heart that was mindful of their rebellion, mindful of their disobedience as the reason, in fact, why they were there in the first place, 
And therefore, coming in humility, coming in repentance, and then out of love and thankfulness and joy for God's faithfulness to his promises. But instead, God's people often came to the temple and together in just loveless ritualism that presumed upon God's grace and didn't instead lavish in it. Who cares if there are piles of animal droppings everywhere? Who cares if we've essentially made this place just a store and a bank? The place of God's holiness, the place of sacrifice and the forgiveness of our sins, the the place of worship and being near the very presence of God, God's just going to continue to just bless us because we're doing all the right, minimally, minimally required motions. But Jesus knows, since he actually created and knows every single person here in this scene, that the triune God of the universe did not create people merely to coexist with them. Like an absentee landlord, perhaps we, we in Israel were thinking, as long as we just pay the rent, as long as we don't burn the place down, the landlord will be happy. But no, the triune God of the universe actually built the house himself and he filled it with people that he might not only be the landlord over the property, but that he might be a roommate. That he might live and dwell with the tenants in love and in joy. And this is what Jesus wants for his people. And so when he arrives at the temple and its leadership is allowing and even leading the people into just ritualistically writing a rent check, The Lamb of God from chapter 1, before our very eyes, then turns into the Lion of God in chapter 2. And a picture of Jesus that is perhaps entirely foreign to the white hippie Jesus that like litters the internet and perhaps our living room walls. Uh, Jesus can't take it anymore. Like the prophets of old, Jesus gets really, really angry. He starts driving out all these animals, flipping tables over, pouring out money bags. Anything that still remains of the house of God that is being made, making of it as a marketplace, as a barn, he's getting rid of all of it. And Jesus might just be fulfilling the day that the prophets themselves look forward to, like in Zechariah 14, where Zechariah wrote, and on that day there will no longer be a merchant in the house of of the Lord. Or Malachi 3, when Malachi wrote, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and he will purify the Levites, the the priestly workers of Israel, and refine them like gold and silver. The prophets were continually preaching to and condemning worship that wasn't pure. So in the same way, on this day that Jesus comes in doing the thing that these prophets were actually looking toward, Jesus is loudly proclaiming and then inviting everyone present to come and worship God from the heart. Free from distraction, free from obligation, free from ritual, but out of love and out of joy. And then John tells us in verse 17 that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We're not sure if The disciples remembered that verse right then and there on that day, if that's when they remembered it, or if it was much later, like in the next paragraph, after Jesus' death and resurrection, likely the latter, but they remembered Psalm 69, 
when David, who had enemies who were seeking to destroy him, seemingly on all sides, for one, because of David's commitment to the tabernacle, to the potential temple, to the right and pure worship of God, his enemies were surrounding him. David cared so much about God's presence in and among his people that he was actually convinced that this zeal, this passion for God's worship might actually consume him. And we read Psalm 69 or its allusion in John 2 and think, man, like zeal for God's house, it really just was kind of eating at David and Jesus. It's, it's eating him up. Like, how do we use the word consume? Like, man, I watched that new series on Netflix and it's, it's consuming me, right? It means like it's, think, it's taking up all my thoughts or that new romantic interest that I met. Man, he or she is just really consuming me. So we think this way, that he's just thinking about, it's on his heart, it's on his mind a lot. But to use consume in the Hebrew in this way actually would mean to burn up and destroy, leaving nothing. Like when God's fire would come and consume the sacrifice in 1 Kings 18 of Elijah, leaving nothing, the flames licking up every bit of moisture and leaving nothing. So John is reflecting on how Jesus' zeal for the temple, his love for God's presence among his people, and the people's right and responsive worship to God is actually what would bring about Jesus' death. Zeal for God's house would consume him. Which now gets us to our second half of this text. It doesn't appear that Actually, Jesus does have serious fondness for this building, for this temple, much less zeal. He initially appears pretty flippant about it. So secondly, after Jesus clears the temple, he fulfills the temple. Let's read 18 through 22 again. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken them, spoken to them. So after this loud and prophetic scene from Jesus, the, the people and the leaders would have been right to say, who in the world do you think you are coming in here like this? But they don't really ask that in verse 18, do they? They almost implicitly acknowledge that what Jesus just did was right. They don't say, whoa, like how dare you come in here and do what you just did? If this rural carpenter from way up north who is completely off of his rocker comes in and starts pouring stuff out and flipping tables over, they would have had plenty of legal recourse to just remove this nut job. But that they ask for a sign seems to indicate that they at least have a sneaking suspicion that this man comes from God. But we're going to need you to prove it first. As we saw last week with Jesus' first sign, signs are, are going to continue to be a major theme throughout John's gospel, culminating with Thomas after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus will continue to condemn people for only believing because of what they see, namely, essentially just a magic trick. Belief after a magic trick actually doesn't require faith. The kind of 
God, I'll believe in you if you just give me a sign. Perhaps we've all done that. God, if you'll just, if, I, if you can show me where my, my car keys are or my wallet is, then I'll never forsake you again, right? We've all made these kind of flippant signs. But these, is, this is not faith. The kind of faith that will trust in God no matter what happens, whether you find the wallet or not. It's a like, okay, monkey, do this trick, and then I'll respond in the right way so that you'll keep doing more tricks. This is actually putting ourselves over God and demanding these kinds of signs. So as long as you get me this grade, as long as I pass this class or graduate, as long as you come through and get me the money that I need to pay the bills this month, as long as you get me a job or get me a better job or get me a promotion, then I'll do what's required of me. As long as you finally just give me a spouse or give us a child, then I'll respond rightly. None of those things are in and of themselves bad things to want for, to ask God for, but this kind of like quid pro quo, perform and then I'll respond rightly kind of faith isn't faith. It's just putting yourself over God and making some pretty wild demands that a creature should never demand of its creator. Jesus shouldn't need to show them any sign other than the one that he just showed them. If there was any semblance of self or scriptural awareness amongst the people that day, they should have seen Jesus like coming in a whooping and a hollering and then thought to themselves, Malachi 3, a sign. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. There it is. It's here. God's presence among us. The messianic kingdom is with us now. But most of them were blind to reality that day, just as we are blind to the reality of making demands that God give us signs other than the one that he has already given us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We demand for him to communicate more of himself to us, to give us additional words when he's already fully communicated to us in the giving of his word, the Bible, which is why we regularly remind ourselves in singing in the song, How Firm a Foundation, what more to you can he say than he already hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus hath fled. Stop looking for signs. Stop looking for additional communication from God. And instead, look to the risen Christ who offers you refuge. This is what's going on here. Anyway, in response to their demand for a sign, Jesus answers them. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? Here it is. Which would be pretty miraculous, wouldn't it? Like, if a building that took 46 years to perfect, and a couple of centuries before that to build its basic skeleton, if it took roughly like 18,000 men working full-time on this monstrosity with 70-ton blocks, of which several still remain today, then yes, any man who could have, see that thing destroyed and then put back together in three days would be a magician. No, more than that, he would likely be sent from God. So this is what he says. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
But then that's it for the dialogue in John. We, we see no more interplay here with these leaders and with Jesus. Mark tells us later at Jesus' trial, Jesus is wrongly accused of saying that he would be the one to destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days. But that's not what Jesus said. Like he often does, Jesus is being pretty cryptic here. But thankfully for us, John gives us his own editorial comment that the disciples only understood later, that when Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, he was talking about his own body, not the building that was looming over him as he said these words. Jesus is saying what John said in chapter 1, verse 14. That Jesus is the word made flesh come to dwell or literally tabernacle among us. That the tabernacle, God's mobile temple, and then the very looming, hulking temple that cast its shadow over this entire scene was in and of itself a sign. It was always something meant to point and prepare Israel for something greater and fuller. It was always just a credit card deferring payment on the debt until God would come and himself pay the debt in full. Jesus is saying that by his death and resurrection, the very purpose and existence of the temple will have reached its fulfilled end. He will be destroyed, but then in three days he will be rebuilt. He will be raised to new life. Jesus is now the place where God and humanity meet. Sacrifice for sins are now not inside there, but at the cross of Christ. No longer bulls and sheep, but himself. Forgiveness of sins are now found full and final through Jesus' empty tomb. No longer just paying the minimum and then needing to be forgiven all over again next year and the next year and the next But finally and fully, access to God is now through Christ and there is full access rather than separateness from God and fear of his holiness. Through Christ, the new and final and full temple, it is done and done, completed and fulfilled. But just like those stone jars last week were like a twist at the end of an M. Night Shyamalan movie, indulge me here for a minute and let me share with you perhaps another twist Perhaps some of you have had the question about the timing of Jesus' so-called cleansing of the temple in John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus does what he just did here in chapter 2 at the very end of his ministry. In fact, uh, it's his cleansing of the temple in the three what we call synoptic gospels that finally puts the scribes and the priests over the edge and they resolve to put him to death at the very end of his ministry. But in John, this comes to the very beginning. Right? We're only six weeks in. We're in chapter two, and uh, this is the very beginning of his ministry. While they seem a little perturbed, no one is really wanting to kill Jesus here in John chapter two. So there are a few options for reconciling how this can be the case. One, John is entirely mistaken. He is not an eyewitness, and this account is entirely unreliable. Two, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are entirely mistaken, and their accounts are not eyewitness accounts, and they are entirely unreliable. But because of my theology of the Bible, as well as the overwhelming trustworthiness of all four gospel writers and the historical minutia and uh, the way that they go together and fit, I'm not persuaded by one or two. So let's dismiss those, all right? Perhaps you can, and let's talk later. 
A third option, there are two separate temple cleansings. One at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that John gives an account for. One at the end of Jesus' ministry that Matthew, Mark, and Luke account for. But for theological reasons, they only choose to emphasize one at the beginning or the end. Many commentators that I implicitly trust on nearly everything that they have to say about the Gospel of John hold this view, and that's perhaps a credible view. But I'm persuaded by four, that Jesus did indeed cleanse the temple at the end of his ministry, but John moved it here for theological purposes. This should absolutely not cause us, by the way, to doubt John's trustworthiness or his reliability. Ancient historians, Roman, Greek, even Jewish historians, didn't operate under the same rules that we hold modern historians to, that you must tell everything exactly in the order that it happened. When you open a biography of George Washington, what should you expect to find at the beginning? The beginning of his life, perhaps even starting with his parents. And then what should be on the last page? The end of his life, his death, perhaps uh, some editorial uh, recounting of, or some synopsis summary at the end, right? Well, while that's primarily the case in the gospel accounts of Jesus, John feels totally at peace to move around the chronology to show us something amazing here in John chapter 2. He's not trying to manipulate the events to fit his cause, but to actually preach to our hearts. So what's John showing us by putting this temple cleansing here in chapter 2? Well, the temple is going to be extremely important throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. So right off the bat in chapter 2, John wants to introduce the structure, the temple structure, and the structure of Jesus actually being the temple. And then throughout the rest of the book, we're going to take a symbolic tour into the temple, going deeper and deeper and deeper inside. So, as you come to the inner courts of the temple, what do you do physically? You, you first must wash, and you must be cleansed at the, the laver. There's like a wash basin, the cleansing pool. So in chapters 3 to 5, washing is going to be an extremely important theme. We'll spend many weeks through 3 through 5 thinking about washing. But then as the priests were allowed to go into the holy place itself, they would see the showbread as an offering to God. And in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread and then teaches about manna. In chapters 8 and 9, in Jesus' teaching on sight and himself being the light of the world, we're then taking further into the holy place where we see the lampstand inside the temple. And then Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17 is, is the priestly rite of incense just outside the Holy of Holies. And then in the following chapters of Jesus' death, we're ushered into the Holy of Holies itself. The presence of God that those whose sins are forgiven at the cross can now finally, for the first time in Israel's history, enter into with full assurance and confidence. So in John's gospel, notice the, the two angels that are at Jesus' open Ark of the Covenant tomb that we are allowed to peer into and behold the glory of God. So John wants to set up the structure of the temple being Jesus here at the beginning and then take us deeper inside throughout the rest of the narrative. And this is what Jesus has done in his coming. He has come as the very temple of God that through faith in his cross you might find full and, for, and final forgiveness. That through Christ's righteousness, you might find full and confident access to God now as Father. 
So in introducing this structure here, a question gets immediately put before us. That of, are your sins forgiven? Do you find the level of your confidence and the assurance of your salvation based more on how you've done lately or based on what Jesus has done fully? Do you find your worship, your your coming here on Sunday evenings, your praying or your Bible reading, are these an overflow of a heart of gratitude, of joy, of love and thankfulness? Or are these more just a ritualistic and religious attempt to manipulate God into acting the way that you want him to act? Do you find your faith fluctuating based on what you've seen him do and what he's provided lately? Or instead, based on who he is, his character and love? Regardless of your answer to any of these questions, look to and put your life-transforming faith in Christ Your identity now in him. His life for yours. His death for yours. Not in what you do or don't do. Not in the the grades that you make or the job that you have or the money that you make. Or if you're being a good parent this week or how successful your children might turn out to be. Or anything that might distract our faith in Christ and Christ alone. It is his death and resurrection that ushers us into the presence of God and nothing else. So let the Jesus of John 2 come as an invitation to turn from sin and to follow him in joy. The Lamb of God who has come to take away, not just generally, the sins of the world, but the Lamb of God who has come to take away your sins Do you feel and know and trust confidently that your sins are forgiven? But don't miss that the Lamb of God is also the Lion of God, that he will not always casually observe the sin and rebellion of humanity. In John 2, we catch just a glimpse, just a glimpse of the vengeful and finally sin-conquering warrior that Jesus is described to be by this same John in the book of Revelation. But this is just as much who he is and who he is in his being, just as much as he is lowly, meek, and mild. So this ought to cause us to turn from our way and instead submit to his way. And not just because of the signs, that you met some nice people tonight, that you perhaps heard some good music or ate a good sandwich. These are all good signs that God has given to us to point us to Christ. But ultimately, that you might behold and meet and worship and love Christ. During this Passover, we read in verse 23 that many are perhaps intrigued by Jesus and his signs. They believed But as he'll continue to gain followers and then lose followers based on the recency of his latest magic trick, Jesus here doesn't entrust himself to these people because he knows them. Like he did with Philip and Nathaniel and Peter in chapter 1. He sees through these people and he knows them. He knows their duplicitous and selfish hearts because they were only there for what he could do for them instead of what he could be for them. They didn't really want him, 
So he didn't give himself to them. Give yourself to him and he will give himself to you. Now, before I pray that all this would settle in and transform our hearts, let me share a couple of stanzas from one of my all-time favorite songs uh, where the guy sings as if he's Jesus. And he says, seemingly, I think going through much of what John 1 and 2 has taught us, like, like a man comes to an altar, I came into this town, and with the world upon my shoulders and promises passed down, and I went into the water, and my father, he was pleased I built it and I'll tear it down so that you will be set free. And I found thieves and salesmen living in my father's house. I know how they got in here and I know how to get them out. I'm turning this place over from floor to balcony. And then, just like these doves and sheep, you will be set free. I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. You bring all your history, and I'll bring the bread and wine. Then we'll have us a party where all the drinks are on me. And as surely as the rising sun, you will be set free. Hear me. If you're trusting in Christ, you will be set free. And this is good news. And this is what we come to do each Sunday to remind ourselves of what Jesus has come to do and what he has done we pray that if you haven't believed in this, that you would join us this evening, perhaps talking to Clint or me or any other Christian that you might see coming forward to this meal, and just ask them what it means to be set free from sin through the death and life and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Infinite and almighty God, you are the consuming warmth and light and center of gravity of the entire universe. And we do acknowledge, perhaps we come to you too flippantly. Perhaps we come in our worship of you too ritualistically, not giving too much thought to what we're saying, to what we're singing, to what we're praying. But Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the example, the teaching of Jesus, that he cares for your worship, that he cares for your holiness, and that was ultimately what consumed him. Father, we pray that your worship, your holiness, might be more of a center of gravity for our lives tonight, for the rest of our time here together. As we go home, as we brush our teeth and get into bed, Father, that your holiness and your worship might be more central in our lives. But we're not only grateful for the example and teaching and ministry of Jesus, we're actually actually thankful for his life and his death and his resurrection, which actually now makes us able to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we pray that we would love you with more of our heart, our soul, and strength, and our mind. We pray that you would forgive us when we don't, And we're thankful for what Jesus has done for us, that we might be adopted sons and daughters, no longer in fear of you, but coming up on a father's lap, might approach you and enjoy you forever in comfortable security for what our brother Jesus has done for us. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen.
hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.